recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 1st, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we're going to um, present one more segment of Martin Luther on the Jews and their lives. This is part four. We're probably going to take a breather from Martin Luther after this and return to our two seed line series for a spell. There's, there's still a lot to discuss there. There's still several um, segments that I hope to present in, in Pragmatic Genesis before we move on to two seed line and its manifestations in, in the rest of the Bible and especially in the New Testament. Right now, it's Martin Luther, part four on the Jews and their lies. First, I, I, I once again have Sword Brethren here to assist me in this presentation, and, and I think he wants to tell us a few things about the situation. Recent, recent events in France, and, and I may be mistaken, but possibly the Ukraine also. I know, Brian, you wanted to discuss them. I certainly want to discuss France. Well, in the last week, about 120,000 white men were protesting in Paris, screaming for the expulsion of all Jews from France and demanding all Muslims be kicked out as well, declaring that France is for the French only. And the media reported, and in, in Europe, no, no English, no North American English news outlet is even covering this, but there are um, videos available on YouTube of the protests. The media in Europe is reporting that only 20,000 protesters were in Paris, and they're generally not mentioning that the police attacked them. They were peacefully protesting, marching through the streets of Paris, and the police attacked them with clubs, tear gas, etc. Okay, and, and, and talk more about the basis for their protest. They want the Jews kicked out of France. They say that basically they've bankrupted the country and they want them gone. Well, well that, that, that's... That, that's um... It, it's wonderful to see the French waking up to the Jewish problem after 200 years. I, I mean, the Jews had already, through, the Masonic, through various Masonic lodges, been able to corrupt France and, and, and pull off the French Revolution, right? That, that was 220 years ago. So, right, well... So, the um, various Israeli groups are now calling on Jews to flee France. They're saying a second Holocaust is in the making. They're saying that the, the French have forgotten the lessons of the Holocaust and that the Nazis are rising again. I'm trying to quantify in my mind what the Jews could mean by the French forgetting the lessons of the Holocaust. In other words, will will make up, will invent even worse atrocities about you than we did about Hitler, and then we'll have England, our poor England, our whores, I should say, poor England and America utterly decimate you like they did Germany. That, that's, the only less, that, that's the only way I could interpret that statement. 
Okay, what's going on in Ukraine? Do you know anything about that? I've heard about massive demonstrations in Kiev or, or something like that. Well, it appears that there's basically, uh, I, I see it as a CIA run operation. They've basically um, hired all these renta mobs and protesters to go protest the government and demand full admission into the EU so they can extend the EU right into the borders with Russia. What wasn't that, you know, that, what what was it, the orange or pink or I, I forget which colors they used for which region? The orange revolution. The, the orange revolution. What wasn't that also CIA run? Right. It, it appears to be. Right, right. I'm certain that it was. I'm certain that all of those color resol- revolutions in the, in in the last twenty years in in Eastern Europe were CIA operations, keeping um, the 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 former former Russian satellite states safe for. Americanism and, and world Jewry. I, I don't know. I could be wrong because they seem to um, to be pretty much in bed with Putin too. His hands aren't clean, but th- there are also various competing factions of world Jewry. So who knows? So who knows what's behind the mask when you pull it off? I'm certain the CIA was behind the Orange Revolution. So if they're behind this one too, it's simply because they want to keep the Ukrainians in, in in involved with NATO and, and looking to the West rather than to the East. But I don't you know, see the, um, the ADL has a vested interest in not reporting the protests in France. What they do report, though, they report anti-Semitic incidents around the world. They report that a Jewish cemetery in Serbia was vandalized. A Jewish man in Argentina who went in a bar was told that Jews weren't being served and that he should go away. They have entire pages on those incidents, but they don't want to report that more than 100,000 white Frenchmen were demanding the expulsion of Jews from France. If they report that, people might start to ask questions such as, why is this going on? And they might start investigating for themselves. Well, well, right. They have to continually portray, um, I hate to use the term, right, anti-Semites as extremist nuts who are outside of, main, of proper mainstream thinking and who are to be reviled as criminals. So, so they love the stories about the lone wolf or the small group anti-Semites, and and you're right in the assessment that anti-Semitism, manifestations of anti-Semitism on a great scale, especially with groups like the French, who have been basically fops for world Jewry for 200 years, why would they take a stand against Jews? 100,000 of them? That certainly would raise some questions. There's no right. doubt. So if they report that a couple drunk skinheads vandalized a synagogue, well, people just write that off as the antics of four or five miscreants, losers, and misfits. If they report that 120,000 people are protesting that Jews have bankrupted the country, manipulated the financial system, and they need to be expelled, then people are going to wonder, well, those are just people like me, aren't they? Why are they against the Jews? How much reporting is done of the Golden Dawn's attitudes towards the Jews in, in the U.S. mainstream media? I don't know. I, I don't know. Probably none. But but it's 
I don't watch the the news, so I don't know. I, I was hoping you would, but maybe not. Well, the Golden Dawn, it seems that they're, at, at the least, they're ambivalent to the Jews. And I'd say it's, it borders on hostile. I think if they were in power, they would definitely move to curtail Jewish power, oh, and they would probably try and expel them from the country. I understand that, but what I was asking was whether that was reported in the mainstream U.S. media. Well, they report that they're a neo-Nazi party, so it's understood when they use the, the slur neo-Nazi that they basically mean anti-Semite. Okay. But I wonder if most, if most Americans have even heard of Golden Dawn. They've received about 20% of the vote in Greece, and I'd say they're a major party. Is there any chance? I don't know anything about what's been going on about any of these things, right? It's, it's, not, my, it's not my area. But, but is there any chance that these demonstrations in France can be characterized as neo-Nazi? Possibly. There are a large number of far-right parties participating in the protests. And the police, they put the official count at 17,000 protesters. They're not commenting on how many people they beat or arrested, but the police did set upon them, like I said, with batons, tear gas. Who knows if they used water cannons and dogs. But they definitely assaulted the peaceful protesters. I'm not sure exactly how explicitly politically anti-Semitic, I hate to use that term, how politically anti-Jewish these people are. If they're members of political parties that have an anti-Jewish platform, I don't know. Okay. It, it's interesting. I just looked it up real quick, and I found that Arutz Shiva, a Jewish news organization, is certainly um, equating the demonstrators in France with Nazis. But, yeah, you know, there's videos on, on Christianity.org which came off of YouTube four or five years ago, that have Jews on the streets of Jerusalem portraying rather mainstream Judeo-Christians as Nazis. And Jews deep down inside understand that national socialism is a Christian expression, and, and therefore they portray Christians regularly as Nazis. If you take a a stand for a Christian position, even if it's as innocuous as the pro-lifers and things like that, you're going to be branded by the Jews as Nazis. Absolutely. Now, that their mainstream media may not make those admissions in its news reportings concerning mainstream conservative groups but those mainstream conservative groups really are not a, a threat to the Jews. The average Jews in the street very often equate Christians with, with Nazis, and they do it regularly. Right, and things must be incredibly bad in France if they've gotten to the point where people are so aware of the overt nature of Jewish power that now over 100,000 are protesting or at the very least around 20,000 if the police officials are to be believed. Still, it seems in America we would struggle to get 30 people at a protest, and most of them would be miscreants and losers and obese people wearing stormtrooper uniforms, who the only thing they're ready to storm is the kitchen pantry. Well, well because Americans don't care if they lose their daughters to niggers. Americans only care if their television goes out and they can't watch their Super Bowl or their football game. 
They're more so, concerned that their local Negro um, felon league team doesn't lose to an out-of-state Negro felon league team. Right. But France, which was uh, fairly homogenous until the last few decades, I, I mean, the French were... Even Hitler complained about the French's that the French use of Algerian troops in Europe all the way back to um to, to the Weimar Republic days, to, to World War One. But but France most of France was very ethnically homogenous and and they they face the biggest threat right now in Europe, but with the Muslim invasion. They're probably the most overrun and I've even heard white nationalists state that France is lost in in, in that area. Now, if, if um, 120,000 Frenchmen are standing up for, for their race, that then that's a glimmer of hope. It's interesting to see how it's going to unfold. Well, the Jews are scrambling around now in France. They're demanding legislative changes, saying that it's not clear what laws these people can be charged under. So they're demanding that new laws immediately be passed so there won't be any more protests. Well, well right. All these hate crimes, all these laws, all of the, the, um, the legislative efforts the last 40 years in, in every white formerly Christian and, and possibly formerly white nation, it is um, geared towards keeping the Jews in power. Every day on, on, on Capitol Hill in America, we have legislation geared towards keeping the Jews in power. There's no doubt. No matter how subtle some of it, or most of it is. So, all these hate crime bills... <laughs> That they're all geared towards keeping the Jews in power in Canada, France, Germany, England. In fact, I heard an account in Canada where a banned book, they have a list of banned books in Canada. If you try and import one into the country, they seize it and burn it. There was an instance where a prohibited book somehow wound up on the shelf at a library. And the account that I was given by um, Mr. Paul Fromm in Canada, he explained that somebody in the library was walking down one of the aisles and saw this banned book. They immediately called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who dispatched what amounted to a SWAT team, and about eight to ten officers came running into the library. You know, they pulled into the parking lot, lights flashing, sirens blaring. They came running into the library, grabbed the book off the shelf, they took it outside and promptly burned it. <laughs> that's funny. But, but yeah, right, That that's the comedy that I... Or, or tragic comedy that, that our society has become. That shows that basically the law is now a farce. Absolutely. That this that I I have a video somewhere posted of of um I think it was Paul Paul Fromm I think it was his house if I'm not mistaken and the ARA was was um protesting outside of his house and they were um, vandalizing his home with the Canadian police standing right there and not doing anything about it. I think that was one of Paul Fromm's friends and fellow activists, but I remember the video where they had broken all the windows on the front of the house. They were throwing things through the broken windows. 
I think some of them were urinating and defecating on the on the on the porch. The police were standing by watching, and some people were even entering through the window to you know throw water balloons filled with paint and all sorts of garbage. And they were utterly trashing this man's house in full view of a half dozen police officers who stood by watching. And and at the same time, the same film documents the ADL at, at a um, political meeting meeting at the province level or possibly at the city level in Canada and ADL representatives petitioning for a grant of money to the ARA. The ARA and, and the Antifa, they're basically the stormtroopers for the ADL. Right, they're the rope front comforboond. Absolutely. And I suppose if the homeowner had been there, and someone threw a brick at him or tried to climb in the window and assault him and he used a firearm to defend himself, the police would promptly intervene against the homeowner. Well, well, right, with the cops standing right there, they, they, they can't be there to protect the homeowner in the home. Right. That entire mob should have been hauled away in a paddy wagon. Well, absolutely. But they were on the right side of the political fence, so to speak. Okay, let's get on to Martin Luther. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens in both Kiev and, and especially in France. Uh, I have to learn more about the Kiev situation, but uh, I need to learn more about uh, everything that's going on in Europe. i, I got to research it this week. It'll be interesting to see if the 200-year love affair that the French have had with the Jews is finally coming to an end. I, I pray. I really do, because France has um, been owned by the Jews ever since the, um, well, well, probably for, for a decade or two before the, the steel was stormed. Right, and I've even pointed out and demonstrated that most of the House of Bourbon, they were contaminated by De Medici blood. Catherine De Medici married the King of France. Right. So it's somewhat ironic that when, you know, they beheaded Louis Sixteenth, he was a Jew. He, he was a Jew from a Christian identity viewpoint, yes. Right. He was a Jew. If you, if you ch check out his ancestry and go back several generations, he had De Medici blood. Okay. If I had to summarize in only a few words what we have seen thus far in Martin Luther's paper on the Jews and their lies, I would want to state that Luther mistakenly took it for granted that the Jews were Israel, thereby forcing himself to adopt a universalist position. And then encountering the election of Israel and claiming an election of believers who are not Israel, Luther is actually arguing against the word of God and not really against the Jews. Despite all of this, Martin Luther realized that the Jews were an accursed people who would never repent and would therefore ultimately only be destroyed. They were uncorrectable. And he based those conclusions on their character. Here in our fourth part of our presentation of Luther's paper, we shall see 
more of the same. However, our discussion is certainly necessary and we hope shall also be interesting. Last week, which you had missed, Brian, I nearly completed part one of Luther's 13-part paper. If I realized how close I was, I would have completed it. I spent five more minutes. I didn't realize how close I was when I ended the program. Here we shall commence where I left off last week towards the end of part one of On the Jews and Their Lives. Do you have anything to say before we begin? Well, Luther was a, a decent, honorable Christian man. He just didn't get the whole picture. Well, well absolutely. He, he had small parts of it, and that was all that was afforded to him. Last week I um, talked in my Acts presentation in, in Acts chapter 28, which I had done the, the night before last week's program on Luther, I had talked about the blindness of Israel and, and many prophecies concerning that. But Luther was certainly um, a victim of that blindness. We all have been, and, and we all still are to some degree. However, the veil is being lifted as... Yahweh our God so desires, and, and many of us now can, can clearly see the meanings of so many biblical passages in concert with the histories of Josephus and, and the prophets of the Old Testament, and we could see that the, the, the white people, for the most part, of, of Europe are indeed the dispersed children of Israel, and the Jews are actually the Canaanites and Edomites and the accursed peoples of the Old Testament. If Martin Luther could see that, he would have understood why the Jews were such incorrigible bastards. He didn't see that, and therefore he still believed they were incorrigible bastards, but he thought they were Israelites, Therefore, he was forced into his universalist position and nevertheless still saw no hope for the Jews. Martin Luther, unlike today's Judeo-Christian clowns, but Martin Luther did not make the foolish error of thinking that the Jews were okay because at the last minute, God was going to magically convert them all and, and they were all going to believe in him and accept the covenant and be his special people. Christ told the Jews, you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. Luther didn't quite even understand that, but he knew that the Jews were irredeemable and that they were doomed. That much he did know. Do you want to read the next the, the next paragraph, or would you like me to? Are we on for the Jews would like? Right. For the Jews would like to entice us Christians to their faith, and they do this wherever they can. If God is to become gracious also to them, the Jews they must first of all banish such blasphemous prayers and songs 
that boast so arrogantly about their lineage from their synagogues, from their hearts and from their lips, for such prayers ever increase and sharpen God's wrath toward them. However, they will not do this, nor will they humble themselves abjectly, except for a few individuals whom God draws unto himself particularly and delivers from their terrible ruin. And I was not aware that Jews were attempting to convert Christians to Judaism. I'd always been under the belief that, maybe mistakenly, that Jews don't really welcome converts, especially white Christian converts, because they realize that it's a matter of biology, not of simple articulation of belief in a faith. So a white man cannot properly convert to Judaism because Judaism is a racial conspiracy against our people. Somewhere in my papers, and I hope to find it one day and, and post it, I, I, have, I still have a, a voluminous collection of, of papers that, that I had from, from notes and articles and things like that from, from prison that, that I've never even um, been able to think of getting to these last five years and sorting through. But somewhere in my collection of papers, I have an, a, a quarter-page ad from a small-town West Virginia newspaper. And that quarter-page ad is from a rabbi at the local synagogue in, in this small town in West Virginia. And you would never imagine a synagogue to be there, but there is one. And he was inviting Christians to have tea at the synagogue and to learn about Judaism. They're still trying, in, in all corners of life, to convert the, the goyim to Judaism. Christ told them that, that, that they, they went um, over land and sea to convert one proselyte, and once they converted them, they made them twice fold the children of hell. Well, there were laws. I'm sorry. Well, I suppose then, since they've largely failed in converting Christians to Judaism, they just tried to. Um, they endeavored to convert Christianity to a Judaic faith. Well, well, I don't have it handy, but there were that there were laws. I think that there were Theodosius too. It may have been sooner that there were laws in the early Byzantine Empire which forbade Jews from proselytizing. Jews were always attempting to proselytize. They wanted to intermarry with Christians. And, and at that time, the only way that you could do that was to, to, to pull them into your religion. I remember, if I recall, I think Justinian, Justinian I, he prohibited the use of the Hebrew language, and then also the um, synagogues. A lot of synagogues were converted in the churches under Justinian. Well, well, right. And under the um, the, the first several se first several Byzantine emperors, the the um, at, after Constantine, Theodosius one, Theodosius two, and and Justinian was was another. That the um, there were many laws that were passed against the Jews and and not being able to hold Christian slaves and, and not being able to convert 
Christians, to, to proselytize Christians into Judaism were among those laws. So, so once, um, well, once Christianity became the, the official, Constantine had only a couple of hundred years before Justinian, Constantine had only legalized Christianity or decriminalized it. He didn't make it the official religion of the empire. That happened with Justinian, and, and when that happened, many laws were passed that, that, that ostracized Jews from society. The Jews were basically excoriated. I, I like to use this word in this sense, even though some people tell me I'm wrong. They were stripped out of society. That they, were, um, they couldn't hold public office. They couldn't loan money to Christians at interest. That they couldn't do a lot of the things that, that Jews do. If, if you don't allow a wolf to do all the things that wolves do, that the wolf will have to leave the forest. Well, Jews had to leave the empire. One of the um, Byzantine emperors, he forbade the Jews from serving in the military or holding any political or civic office, but they were still allowed to serve as tax collectors. Okay, that's funny. And there are allegations that several of the Byzantine emperors had Jewish heritage. Well, well, I don't know about that, but I do know about the, the, the um, many laws that were passed by Theodosius one and two, and, and by Justinian, which um, greatly impaired the Jews' ability to, to operate within the empire. From that time, they were never equal citizens. They couldn't be citizens in, in the empire or, or anywhere in Europe, in, in Christian Europe, until their emancipation on, uh, in the days of Napoleon. Well, which is the importance of, of the, the, the emancipation. That's what made it significant. Well, it was because once that happened, Jews were free and equal citizens with Christians and, and could hold office and, and were once again in a position to corrupt the, the white nations of Europe. Note here that, that this is a serious, I, I believe, lapse in Luther's thinking here. L Luther says that, um, let, let me find this passage. L Luther says, if God is to become gracious also to them, the Jews, they must first of all banish such blasphemous prayers and songs that boast so arrogantly about their lineage from their synagogues. And I believe that's a preposterous theological omission on Luther's part in that Luther makes no mention of an acceptance of Christ as a condition for God's granting them grace. The omission is preposterous because Christ himself said that no one gets to the Father except through me. And Luther should have used 
that as the first step, if it were possible, in rehabilitating the Jew. An acceptance of Christ would be step one. Of course, we know that they cannot do that and that they certainly should not be compelled to do that. If Christ himself couldn't convert them, no man can, and we certainly should leave them to their devices. But the, um, the omission or, or the, the Luther's statement infers that he thought that Judaism was a legitimate religion next to Christianity, and Judaism is not legitimate at all. Christianity is the religion of Moses and the prophets. If you claim to be the, a follower of Moses and the prophets, you must be a Christian. Christ told the Jews that, that they had no part with him, that Moses and, and the prophets had written about him, and that they didn't believe Moses and the prophets. So, so basically there was no religious hope for them at all. So that that's a serious lapse of judgment on, on, on Luther's part. Well, Luther didn't have all the facts, and I think a lot of it is just attributed to that, you know, um, God did not give him the understanding. If Yahweh wanted Luther to be the ideological founder of, you know, codified, written-down identity doctrine, it would have been so. Well, well, right, but this isn't identity doctrine. This is sound Christian doctrine. If you expect the grace of God, you have to go through, to, through, to God through Christ. There's no other entry to God except through Christ. They are the explicit words of Christ himself. And that's, that, that shouldn't be, you know, that's not a, that, that can't be considered an identity interpretation of Scripture. That's the plain word of Scripture. Luther did have that, and he should have believed it. So, so his... Expect his um, suggesting, which is what he's doing here, the Jews could come into the grace of God without recognizing Christ is actually contrary to the words of Christ. Right. No one gets to the Father except through me. That means that if you can hope for the grace of God, you'd better be a follower of Christ and, and and be obedient to him and consider yourself to be a Christian. So Luther that, made the mistake then of assuming that the Jews wanted to get to God and that therefore they would have to go through Christ. Well, well right too and, and that's the that, that's the next uh, that's the next step. He he made the mistake of assuming that the Jews really wanted to to, to um come into God's grace. You know, I've heard some interviews where some people that are outspoken Luciferians, one of them explained that, you know, growing up in Luciferian Satanism, that he was taught that the um, rising phoenix was the symbol of Lucifer, and he said that Lucifer, as he was taught, was the most beautiful, angelic, 
magnificent, wondrous being, and if you were to gaze upon him in all of his glory for even a second, you would be blinded by his majesty, and that in the end times they teach that Lucifer will overthrow God and establish a kingdom for his people. Well, isn't that what the Jews have been trying to do for thousands of years, to bring, bring in their father's kingdom? That's what we have today. That's what we have now. That, that's Revelation seventeen seventeen. That their kingdom, meaning the children of Israel, their kingdom would be handed over to the beast. That's Revelation chapter seventeen seventeen. That's where we have been the last couple of hundred years. That, that's a that that's also a fulfillment of, of um, Isaac's words to Esau. Where Isaac told him that he would break break his brother's yoke and, and come to rule over him. That that's um, a fulfillment of that, and, and um, that that's the time of Jacob's trouble, which we read about in Jeremiah. And all the um, New World Order types, the Alex Joneses, the evangelical Christians who think the Antichrist is going to come in and start beheading Christians with a guillotine. Why do, why do they need to do that? They've got Christians that are destroying their heritage by going to bed with Kaffirs and Hottentots. Well, well right. And, and, and the Antichrist was beheading Christians with the guillotine in, in, um, in the French Revolution. And, and they were beheading Christians in, in many other ways throughout the next 200 years of European history. Today, that they have broken... Christian Europe, and, and when I say Christian Europe, I, I'm including America and Australia and, and all of Europe's children, that they've broken Christendom, let me call it that, to the point where what we are basically as a people fully compliant to the Jewish agenda and, and gladly hop in bed with beggars, cutting off our prospects of having legitimate children destroying our race. No doubt. Would you like to get on with Luke? All right. Are we at the other yes. boast the other boast and nobility over which the Jews gloat and because of which they haughtily and vainly despise all mankind is their circumcision, which they received from Abraham. My God, what we Gentiles have to put up with in their synagogues, prayers, songs, and doctrines. What a stench we poor people are in their nostrils because we are not circumcised. Indeed, God himself must again submit to the miserable torment, if I may put it thus, as they confront him with inexpressible presumption and boast. Praised be thou, King of the world, who singled us out from all the nations and sanctified us by the covenant of circumcision. And similarly... With many other words, the tenor of all of which is that God should esteem them above and the rest of the world because they, in compliance with his decree, are circumcised and that he should condemn all other people just as they do and wish to do. Well, well you know, Luther tells again here where, and, and he consistently fails to address the Jews on biblical grounds. If he, in, in his previous argument, 
understood the biblical grounds, that Judaism it is um, it is a false religion because nobody gets to God except through Christ. You know, it's a lot easier for, for men to prove that the Jews are wrong based on biblical grounds and not on the reasoning of man. Here again, we have the reasoning of man. Luther is kind of buying the, the, um, the, the Jewish argument that they have a covenant of circumcision. The circumcision is not the covenant. The circumcision alone does not admit anyone into the covenant which God made with Abraham. If we go back and read those chapters of Genesis, chapter 12 through perhaps chapter 17, the circumcision was only a sign marking in remembrance the covenant which God made with Abraham, which all of Abraham's house were compelled to wear that sign. The covenant itself was made to Abraham and his seed. And unless one is born into the seed of the promise, well, you can go get yourself circumcised, but that doesn't mean anything. If you're not one of those seed who are supposed to be circumcised in order to mark that covenant, if you're not one of those seed, then your circumcision is vain. Your circumcision doesn't matter. You could, if all of the children of God wore blue shirts and a nigger decided that he was going to wear a blue shirt, that wouldn't make him one of the children of God. He would still be a nigger. He'd be a nigger with a blue shirt. If all of your children wore gray shirts and, and some kid down the street decides to wear a gray shirt, does that mean that he's one of your kids? No, not at all. He's just some kid with a gray shirt, but he's not one of your kids. So, so the circumcision was only a sign of the covenant, but the circumcision was not the covenant. The circumcision itself doesn't prove that you're a bearer of the promises. Well, you can't graft yourself in. Let's say um, I'm dead, the executor of my estate is reading my will, all the heirs are assembled, and let's say they're in a park, they're doing this publicly in a park, and he's reading to so-and-so, you know, I bequeath this, to so-and-so I leave that, and somebody, you know, a hot and tot happens to be walking by and he says, hey, you know, that, that's pretty good, you know, so he sits down and he says, I want to be an heir, I want to be an heir, you know, I, I believe in that guy who just died, he, he's pretty cool, you know, I'll count me as one of his heirs. Well, you, you can't just force yourself into the will. If you're not part of the agreement, you're not part of the agreement. Well, well Luther is accepting the Jewish argument that the covenant is a covenant of circumcision, but the circumcision is only a sign of the covenant. It, it's the form. It's not the substance. The right. covenant is for Abraham and his seed. And they are to follow the form 
but you need to be form and substance. You can't just mimic somebody and steal their inheritance, but which is what the Jews were doing because they were really Edomites. All right. Luther 9? Yes. In this boast of nobility, they glory as much as they do in their physical birth. Consequently, I believe that if Moses himself would appear together with Elijah and their Messiah and would try to deprive them of this boast or forbid such prayers and doctrine, they would probably consider all three of them to be the worst devils in hell, and they would be at a loss to know how to curse and damn them adequately to say nothing of believing them. Well, if I'm not mistaken... They killed, basically all the prophets they were able to get their hands on, they killed. They killed um, Isaiah, they killed Jeremiah. Elijah, of course, ascended into heaven so that they couldn't kill him. But if they could have, they would have. We're told that all the blood of the prophets down to righteous Abel was on them. Right. Je- Jeremiah well, was left to Tanna's Egypt and ostensibly escaped from there. In, in the Western Europe, <clears throat> that the um, Isaiah and 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 a great number of the prophets were indeed slaughtered, and we're explicitly told that the race of Cain is responsible for that, down to the blood of righteous Abel. Well, well, absolutely, and and, and um, Christ is using a word which means race and refers to the blood of Abel, and the only race which could be responsible for the blood of Abel is indeed the race of Cain. You can't, there is our God being a just and righteous God. There is no means by which he can blame the race of the unborn Seth. Seth was not yet born according to scripture but when Abel was slain. There's no means by which Yahweh our God could pin the murder of Abel, the blood of Abel, onto the children of Seth. It can't be. <clears throat> and and um, he does that in Luke chapter 11. He explains that the words of Christ. In John chapter 8, he tells them that they are of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. So we have Cain, who is a murderer from the beginning. He's the only one that could be considered a murderer from the beginning. And we have him being identified by Christ as a devil. Now, in God's law of kind after kind, we also have the serpent who is regarded as a devil. And that identification, the serpent, is equated with a devil in Revelation chapter 12. That old serpent is the devil and Satan. So while it's it's sure from Revelation 12 and from the fact that we have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, that there's an entire group who are collectively Satan, 
and the serpent is only the serpent of the garden is only one individual of that group. Nevertheless, if he's a devil and if Cain's a devil, God's law of kind after kind alone insists that the serpent is the real father of Cain. And I wouldn't try to spiritualize that word father. We're treading on very dangerous ground. When Christ tells the, 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 his opposition in the temple that their father is not his father, he's not spiritualizing that word father, and we can't imagine that he is. He is telling them that their origin is something other than his origin, and, and that's where we believe to see line, that Cain was not, despite Genesis 4.1, and that could be shown to be a corrupt passage, that Cain is not Adam's son. There is no way that Cain is Adam's son, or Christ is a liar. So Martin Luther didn't understand all this. It, it's, um, it, it's the blindness of Israel that that's the way it is. The Canaanites, that these Jews are actually Canaanites and Edomites, and the Edomites are congruent to Canaanites, that they essentially are Canaanites, except that they bear the name of Esau, that the, um, the Canaanites, were told, would be thorns in our eyes because we did not, 3,500 years ago, exterminate all of them as we were commanded by our God. This is the perfect fulfillment. It, it's one manifestation of, of the perfect fulfillment of the word of God. These Canaanite Jews that Luther is arguing against, they are thorns in Luther's eyes. Because as long as Luther accepts their word that they're Israelites, Luther is going to be blind and, and forced into this universalist position where he's found arguing against the word of God. Luther here admits the idea of Moses and Elijah and their Messiah. That's Luther's words, their Messiah, as if such an idea could possibly exist. Yahshua Christ was not our Messiah. He was not a Messiah. Yahshua Christ was the Messiah. And if he is not their Messiah, then they have no Messiah at all. Period. So, so we can't imagine the Jews to have a Messiah. Christ was the Messiah of Israel. He's the only Messiah. And the Jews have no Messiah. Now, now, aside from that, Luther's argument is valid. Because their Messiah did come, if indeed they were really Israel, as they claim, and they rejected him. So, so they have no other Messiah, and, and they do consider Christ to be one of the worst, or, or the worst devil in hell. So, so 
Yeah, you know, Luther's entire argument is silly because it's true. It's silly because it's true. But it, they don't have a Messiah. They've already missed that boat. Now they, they understand. Now today, Jews understand that they've missed that, that boat. And, and they also understand that if they, that they are not their own Messiah, if they don't be successful at, at being their own Messiah, that, then there's nobody else that's going to save their filthy asses. But they're, they're done. So the Jews now believe that they are their own Messiah and that they will save themselves. That, that they're found to be boxing with God. Well, well, that concludes part one of Luther's paper on the Jews and their lives. I, I wish that he would have changed the topic in, in, in part two. In, in part two, we're going to begin with more of the same thing, Martin Luther's sophistic arguments against the Jews. And, and I call them sophistic arguments because that they're based on, well, well, they're based on two things. First, Luther bases his argument on the, the false premise that many of the Jews' statements are legitimate. And second, he, he, he bases his own arguments retaliating to the Jews on, on the wisdom of men and, and, and reason and, and his own rational mind rather than just going back to Scripture and reading the simple words of Christ and, and answering the Jews from Scripture, which will always defeat them. Do you have any comments? Well, like you said, looking from Luther's perspective, if the Jews are the people of the Old Testament and Jesus was their promised Messiah, they rejected him as a whole and they murdered him, so now they have no more Messiah. So who are they well, waiting for? Christ was the Messiah. That's the Christian contention. And, and, and the Jews rejecting him... Well, they had to reject them because genetically they are Satan. But the Jews rejecting him demonstrate the truth of the word of God that only his sheep hear his voice. They're not his sheep. They're not his people. It's up to us to examine history in concert with Scripture to find out how that is so. Absolutely. But when we read the words of Christ, in other words, in, in I think it's John 10:26, where Christ says, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. When we read those words, we have an obligation as Christians to examine how those words could be true. Because to do what the Catholic Church does and to twist those words to say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe me, that is to pervert the words of Christ and, and to basically deny Christ. 
And that's what the Catholics do. Right, but they Luther said words and they deny Christ. Is Luther aware though that the scripture says that you do not believe me because you are not my sheep? I don't know how he could not be aware of that. I don't read German or I would go check the Luther Bible. But but the Greek is so plain that it cannot possibly be interpreted any other way. And there's no argument on that verse in the Greek language, in the Greek manuscripts. Well, what do we do a search on the Luther Bible and John 10.26? I'm heading there now. I might be wrong. John 26. Aber ihr glaubt nicht, denn ihr seid nicht von meinen Schafen. It looks like he's saying, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Okay. So why didn't Luther believe that? (laughs) Well, Luther, you know, his paper tells me over and over again, his own writing, that, that even though he was a translator of Scripture, he still believed the Catholic dogma over the Scripture. Right. And it's right there in plain language, though. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Luther Bible, John 10:26. So there you have it. Why didn't... It, it's the Christian obligation to examine what was possibly going on in Judea, or or what was the history of Judea leading up to the time of Christ, I would think, in, in order for Christ to be able to say those words to these rulers in the temple, and we have to first accept that the words of Christ are true if we're Christians, and then examine history and scripture to find out why they're true. We don't doubt the words of Christ simply because we don't understand them. If we do that, then we're not Christians. We might be something else, but we certainly can't be Christians if we're going to deny the words of Christ. So that this... That this is, it's not just Luther, it's the entire Roman Catholic Church for the last 15, 16 centuries that have done this, or, or longer. It, it's, it's the, um, to understand this one simple facet of, of church and, and Christianity is to see how the Word of God in 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 his prophets in in his prophecies in his oracles is so sound and so perfect that these plain words of Christ could be either overlooked or perverted for fifteen hundred years, and that the fact that they were overlooked and perverted has facilitated 
the word of God where he said that the children of Israel were going to be blind. Who is, my, who is blind but my servant? As Isaiah, as God asks in Isaiah chapter 43, I think it is. The, the word of God is, it is um, the Bible is an amazing book. And, and we fulfill it every step of the way. There's no doubt. Once we know this, we have an obligation to find out why Christ said that. We have an obligation to find out who those people were that he was talking to. When we examine scripture and history in concert, we find that the Edomites had taken over the temple that he was talking to Edomites. That explains why Christ told them, I know you are Abraham's seed because they were the seed of Esau. He was just agreeing to a fact. Just because they're Abraham's seed doesn't make them heirs of the covenant. The heirs of the covenant are Jacob's children and not Esau's. The Edomites thought that they could squeeze their way into the polity of God by their works when they, they were really only contending with God. And the Talmud, which is the, the, the result of Edomite Phariseeism, the, the Talmud is the expression of that. Would you like to continue with Luther? All right. We're at the um, opening of part two now, right? Yes. Now, just behold these miserable, blind, and senseless people. In the first place, as I said previously in regard to physical birth, if I were to concede that circumcision is sufficient to make them a people of God or to sanctify and set them apart from God, from all other nations, then the conclusion would have to be this. Whoever was circumcised could not be evil, nor could he be damned, nor would God permit this to happen if he regarded circumcision as imbued with such holiness and power. Just as we Christians say, whoever has faith cannot be evil and cannot be damned so long as he endures. For God regards faith as so precious, valuable, and powerful that it will surely sanctify and prevent him who has faith and retains his faith from being lost or becoming evil. But I shall let this go for now. And, and this is a universalist position. It, it's, it's basically that the, 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 um, what we see in this, the embryo of the old grace, not race mantra. Oh, it's grace, not race. Well, well, grace was a matter of prophecy, and grace was only promised to the children of Israel because only the children of Israel were under the law, only the children of Israel required God's grace. And, and while all of that is true, it's, great, it's not grace not. It's not proper to say grace not race because in truth the promises of God are insistent upon both grace and race. And, and Luther's recognizing that those with the faith 
are, are the um, the true Christians and not those by the law, well, which is what Paul taught, still doesn't preclude the fact, as Paul taught, that only the seed of Abraham are the recipients of the grace. Only the seed of Abraham are the subjects of the faith, and that being the seed of Abraham through Jacob, not the seed of Abraham through Esau or the Ishmaelites or the others. So, so Luther, not knowing his history, is, is going to remain in a universalist trap. He has to because he thinks the Jews are Israel. So he's disputing with the word of God. The biggest problem here, though, is his, it, it is his continued insistence that the circumcision is the covenant. The circumcision is not the covenant. The circumcision doesn't imbue holiness and power. There's nothing in Scripture that, that allows those statements. Luther didn't base those statements on Scripture. He based those statements, those statements are derived from his own reason. And his own reason is the reasoning of man, and the reasoning of man always fails. The promises and the covenants are for Abraham's seed, and the circumcision was only a sign. And, and it wasn't, the circumcision wasn't necessarily to be a sign to the outside world that you were one of the children of Abraham and the children of God. The circumcision was supposed to be a sign that you were willing to comply with the commandments of God. That's all it's a sign for, that you're accepting your responsibility and your obligation being one of Abraham's seed your responsibility and your obligation to be obedient to God because you have been chosen out to be his servant race. So, so that's what the circumcision's for. And Luther just ignores all, all of that um, clear biblical doctrine and argues with the Jews based on reason. It, it only works for universalists, but it doesn't work for, for um, in, in, in what is compared to Scripture. Comments? Well, I'm just looking at the choice of words from John 10.26, how Luther chose to translate that. And the use of the word von, when he's talking about of my sheep, in that context, I think it's more of an of from, because, you know, the Germans, if they say, give me a glass of water, they don't put a von in there for of water. They just, you know, they request the glass. You know, in English, it would basically be glass water or the water. Well, and, and that's because he's translating the Greek word ek, more than likely. I, I don't really have a Greek text in front of me, but I have one in a book here that I could turn to it. Right, but his, his use of the von... It has a connotation of physically from, where if you're from Munich, you would use von when describing, you know, I am from Munich to one of your friends. Or right, and, from and the Greek. I'm looking here at the Greek, and the Greek has ek, tone, probaton. Tone, probaton is the plural genitive case of the word 
for sheep, but that word ek is a Greek preposition which denotes source or origin. You right. are not from of my sheep. I'm certain that's the way I probably translated it in the Christian New Testament. I'm going to go check now. You are not from of my sheep. That, right, that's so, very explicit language. I think when Luther's translating this, though, he had to understand there's a physical connotation that they are not of from the sheep in a physical, biological, heritage sense. Right, absolutely. That's what Christ is telling them. He's using this very explicit language. The people he was talking to were not Israelites. You are not from of my sheep. All right, did you um, find your Christogenia translation? Yeah, yeah, I shortened it. I didn't use the emphatic. Usually with ek, you'll see a lot of times in, in the Christogenia New Testament that the words from, of, do appear, and here I simply simplified it to you are not my sheep. But the meaning is you are not from, of, my sheep. You, you have nothing to do with my flock. Your origin is somewhere else. Right. So I think Luther understands it would be improper if you tell someone you're not one of the guests. If there's a party, you probably would not use Vaughn in that context. But if you say you're not of this family or you're not of this city, you would almost certainly use Vaughn in that context. Absolutely. And that's what Christ is saying. It's very explicit language. Luther could not have missed the meaning, but he obviously did. And, and that's the, the, the beauty of the fulfillment of the Word of God, that even though Martin Luther was a great man, he was a great man, no doubt. He was a pious man. He, he was very strong in his faith. There is no doubt. This man was a sincere Christian. He stood up to, to great powers in a difficult time, and he fought his battles to the end. And he won. He prevailed. There's no doubt Luther was a great man and a pious man, but he was blind. And he was blind because God said that Israel would be blind. So... so even though he correctly translated that passage, even better than I have, he, 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 he didn't simplify it. He translated it emphatically and exactly literally. He should have understood its meaning, but he didn't because the children of Israel were to be blind. He was um, one of those people who had that God imposed blindness. It wasn't time yet for the children of Israel to learn who the Jews really were. And look at the world today. Even though there's a lot of us who do know, it's still not time for the general population to know. Otherwise, they would. When God wants it to happen, one day we're all going to wake up and everybody's going to know that these bastards are really the devil incarnate. 
And we're all going to take that knowledge for granted. We're just going to know it. Because God wants to lift that veil from off of our faces. We're just going to know it. And then, and then all, of us, all of us who were scorned for professing it ahead of time will be vindicated, but we're not going to get the credit for it because the glory belongs to God. We're scorned for it today. It's going to be common knowledge in a tomorrow to come. All right. Back to Luther. Yes. In the second place, we note here again how the Jews provoke God's anger more and more with such prayer. For there they stand and defame God with a blasphemous, shameful, and impudent lie. They are so blind and stupid that they see neither the words found in Genesis 17 nor the whole of Scripture which mightily and explicitly condemns this lie. For in Genesis 17:12, Moses states that Abraham was ordered to circumcise not only his son Isaac, who at that time was not yet born, but all the males born in his house, whether sons or servants, including the slaves, all of these were circumcised on one day together with Abraham, Ishmael too, who at the time was 13 years of age, as the text informs us. Thus the covenant or decree of circumcision encompasses the entire seed of all the descendants of Abraham, particularly Ishmael, who was the first seed of Abraham to be circumcised. Accordingly, Ishmael is not only the equal of his brother Isaac, but he might even if this were to be esteemed before God, be entitled to boast of his circumcision more than Isaac, since he was circumcised one year sooner. In view of this, the Ishmaelites might well enjoy a higher repute than the Israelites, for their forefather Ishmael was circumcised before Isaac, the progenitor of the Israelites, was born. But now the Ishmaelites... Go on. They went off and mixed, right? Correct? The Ishmaelites today, they are, they are not Israelites. Well, right. The Ishmaelites became Arab peoples. They mixed, and they mixed predominantly and, and at a very early time with the same people that the Edomites mixed with and with the Edomites themselves. You could step back through the Old Testament and see that the Ishmaelites were mixed, that they lived amongst the Horites, that they lived alongside the Horites just like the Edomites did, and they mixed with the Canaanites as well as the Edomites. So, so the, the, there's, um, it's very clear throughout Scripture the Ishmaelites are also mixed. They're also Arabs. And today, you, you know, today they're all Arabs. I, I can't imagine an Ishmaelite who could possibly not be an Arab because they had mixed evidently only several generations after the desettling of the Edomites in, in, in Mount, Mount Hor, which later become, became known as Mount Seir and, and which today is known as Petra, of course. But the, um, the men of Abraham's house were all circumcised servants included. 
Luther is right about that. But the men of Abraham's house, firstly, they were all of Abraham's own race, kith and kin. That's very clear because Abraham had taken all of those men, as the Genesis account tells us, from the city of his brother, from Haran. And therefore, none of those men were aliens. Secondly, simply because the men of Abraham's house were circumcised does not mean that they were included in those covenants and promises which were made to Abraham and to his seed and then passed down, not to Ishmael. Ishmael was sent away. They were passed down to Isaac and to Jacob. Just because these men were circumcised doesn't mean they have a part in that covenant that God made with Abraham and his seed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel. These men of Abraham's house, they were circumcised, not for their own sakes necessarily, but for the sake of Abraham's seed and for the sake of Abraham who was commanded to circumcise everybody in his house as a sign of Abraham's obedience to God. So that doesn't make them co-heirs of the covenant. That doesn't include them in Abraham's seed simply because they were circumcised. And Luther is basically presuming that it did and arguing with the Jews on that basis. All right. Why then do the Jews lie so shamefully before God in their prayer and preaching as though circumcision were theirs alone, through which they were set apart from all other nations, and thus they alone are God's holy people? They should really if they were capable of it, be a bit ashamed before the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, and the other nations when they consider that they were at all times a small nation, scarcely a handful of people, in comparison with others who were also Abraham's seed and were also circumcised, and who indubitably transmitted such a command of their father Abraham to their descendants, and that the circumcision transmitted to the one son Isaac, rather insignificant when compared with the circumcision transmitted to Abraham's other sons. For scripture records that Ishmael, Abraham's son, became a great nation, that he begot twelve princes, also that the six sons of Keturah, Genesis 25.1, possessed much greater areas of land than Israel, and undoubtedly these observed the rite of circumcision handed down to them by their fathers. Yet, that was all Ishmael got, right? That you will be a great nation. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so he did become a great nation and, and a great mixed nation, but that, that still doesn't um, mean that the promise wasn't fulfilled as God stated it because there was nothing else connected to that. The Ishmaelites of ancient times were indeed a great nation. They're mentioned in Assyrian inscriptions. I've pointed that out, I believe, in my... Amos presentations that the um, Ishmaelites were mentioned. 
that the Ishmaelites what were, the, the Ishmaelite cities are mentioned by the prophets a thousand years after the time of, of Jacob and the patriarchs. So, so there's no doubt that the Ishmaelites became a great nation, that God kept his word to Ishmael. However, they were cast aside. They were not the heirs of the covenant. They were, Ishmael was sent away because he could not be an heir along with Isaac. The coming of Christ was in accord with the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Luke and Paul attest that. The coming of Christ was not in spite of those promises, and that's the picture that Luther is attempting to draw here. But it's simply not true. Esau and Ishmael, as Paul himself explains in his epistle to the Galatians, they are still excluded from the promises. And, and, and there are many prophecies in the Old Testament, prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Obadiah, Malachi chapter 1, concerning the Edomites, that, that tell us very plainly that the Edomites are still excluded from the polity of God. And, and Paul repeats Malachi in Romans chapter 9, which tells us that Malachi is still valid. The words of the prophet Malachi concerning Esau are still valid in a Christian context. So Luther is basically denying that in order to make this, um, this illustration concerning the importance of the circumcision. However, he's also confusing the circumcision with the covenant itself. I like to always compare the form and the substance. The substance of God's covenant with Abraham is Abraham's seed. The form or part of the form are that Abraham's chosen seed would be circumcised. Now, the circumcision which the children of Israel bore did not come from Abraham. The children of Israel were not initially circumcised in Egypt. And, and, and the proof of that is in the law. When Moses was given the law, the children of Israel were once again commanded to be circumcised. And all of the children of Israel had to be circumcised according to the law. So the circumcision to Israel, the Jews claim that, that it comes straight from Abraham, but it's really a, a, a commandment of God in the law. So while it's, 
it, it's connected to the circumcision of Abraham. That's not the reason why the children of Israel were circumcised. The children of Israel were circumcised because they were commanded to be circumcised by God in the law. And it starts in Exodus 12.44 and, and Exodus 12.48. I'm going to read um I'm going to read Joshua from Joshua chapter 5. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites which were on the side of the Jordan westward and all the kings of the Canaanites which were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore, because of the children of Israel. At the time, at that time, Yahweh said unto Joshua, Make thee sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. They were circumcised earlier on the other side of, of, of the forty years wandering in the desert and the conquest of Canaan. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel in the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, then they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of Yahweh, unto whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which Yahweh swear unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. So you see, there was a break in the circumcision, and circumcision being a matter of the law, Joshua was instructed to once again circumcise the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. But what I'm trying to say is that circumcision of Israel comes from the law, and 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 is a is is a ritual of the law which is done away with in Christ just like all the other rituals. The promise to Abraham was made before the circumcision, before the law, and the circumcision was only the circumcision which by which Abraham circumcised the male members of his household was only a token, a sign that Abraham was going to comply with the commandments of God, that his household be circumcised. But that, that circumcision was extraneous to the original promise, and it... it wasn't the circumcision passed down to the children of Israel. The circumcision of the children of Israel, even though it was for the same reasons, was for, finds its roots in the Levit Levitical law. So the, the, um, 
the, the circumcision by by which the Israelites were commanded to be circumcised, the the the, the Edomites and the Ishmaelites they had no part in that. That just because the Edomites and the Ishmaelites may have continued the habit of circumcision, that doesn't include them into the covenants and promises which are for Israel. And Luther is um, trying to make the claim that their circumcision is just as good as Israel's. Well, well, the physical circumcision means nothing because the promise was passed down to Jacob and to his seed. So Jacob and his seed being circumcised as a sign of that, well, well, that's fine, and that's the law. But you can't take a circumcised Ishmaelite and, and claim that he could now be as good a child of God as the, the children of Israel simply because he's circumcised. The circumcision is not the covenant. The covenant is much greater than the circumcision. I, I, I hope all that was clear. I think it was. Well, Luther is disputing with Scripture in addressing the claims of the Jews rather than merely demonstrating that those claims are based on false premises. Arguing against the claim rather than merely demonstrating that it is not based on Scripture lends legitimacy to the possibility of the claim itself. However, Luther is forced into a position on universalism by accepting the Jews as Israel. And that's where his error begins. Everything that follows is going to be critically affected by that first error and and therefore only perpetuate and, and propagate more error. Because Luther accepted the Jewish claims as Israel, Luther did not have the capacity could, to properly show that the promise was to Abraham and to his seed apart from circumcision. If he did that, if Luther presented a correct defense against the claim of the Jews, his arguments would be under... Luther's beliefs themselves would be undermined. Luther would be undermined as well as the Jews. He, He couldn't make a proper illustration of Scripture because he would undermine his own position as a Christian. Because Scripture proves that non-Israelites, that people from nations other than those descended from Israel, cannot be Christians. So, So Luther had to stay blind. As long as you accept that Jewish argument that they are Israel... You have to be a universalist. You have no choice. So Luther is basically taking the premise 
at face value and just arguing against the um, their claim itself instead of attacking the premise and collapsing the whole claim. Right. Right. If you'd have attacked the, the, the claim and, and 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 the false premise, he, he, he the claim wouldn't stand. If he just argued with the what would the Jews based on scripture instead of his own reason. But then he would undermine himself. He, he, he had to be a Catholic twister of scripture as long as he believed that he was a Gentile and not a member of those nations that descended from the children of Israel. Which is the real meaning of the word Gentile, where Paul uses it in connection with those people who he sought to convert in his ministry. So Luther had to stay blind. That's my point. In a in a circumlocutious way. All right. Back to Luther, or do we yes. stop here? Wow, it is late. Okay, I think we'll stop here. That's good. All right. So we will pick uh, up. I, um, well, we'll continue in this vein next week. This is is going to get better because Martin Luther does um, expose the treachery of the Jews in, in a lot of good ways later in his paper, and I can't wait to get to those parts. It, it's um, it, it's it, it's much better to see where Luther did well than to see where he failed, and and where he failed. He really couldn't help it. He had to fail because the word of God kept Israel in blindness. Now, in this day and age, I would say that it's time for the blindness to come off, that there's enough of us who know that this, that this message well, who are biting at the bit, who can't wait until that the shells fall from the eyes of, of our Christian brethren. It's a matter of time, but the time is determined by our God, and we can't force his hand. All right. Praise Yahweh. Okay, I, I guess that's your closing comment. Thank you, Brian, for joining me. Praise Yahweh. I, I will be here next Friday night. I think, I'm not positive yet, I, I haven't decided, I'll decide by Monday. I think I may be beginning my presentation on the Book of Micah, or I should say a presentation on the Book of Micah, since, of course, I haven't started assembling it yet. And, and I will be here next Saturday night, and I'm going to leave next Saturday open. I'm not certain exactly what I'm going to do. Brian, you won't be here next Saturday, right? Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. I will be here next Saturday night, and I don't know what I'm doing yet. It it may be something associated with 2C line. I have a few things to find out, and I have two plans, so we'll see which one of them pans out. There's an event schedule at the new Christagenia website. You can find it on the top menu bar, and, and I will post next weekend's programs there as soon as I settle on 
topics. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night. Thank you.